Hello and welcome to Women Travel, a podcast about the places women have been and the things they did there. This week I get to interview in person Terry Vaseca Atwood. This week is a special episode where I get to live in person interview my interviewee. And so the story begins in Terry's living room in Clancy, Montana. Clancy is a small town with two bars, a school, and a post office. I've been over to Terry's house a few times to visit, and she's agreed to let me interview her about her trip to Thailand. But this isn't an ordinary trip. Terry sits before me, letting me snap photos of her with her two Shih Tzus, Jake and Claire. She often wears a lot of jean fabric like overalls, and then a jean jacket over top. She has a shock of bright red hair. Her walls are decorated with posters of musicians and historical photos of Montana. She keeps the overhead lights off at all times. Instead, every space is filled with table lamps, and in the corner is a Christmas tree already set up. There are several huge binders in her office, one with all the letters written between her and her father. The other is a binder of her history lecture about Bobby Kelly, the only prostitute killed violently in Montana during a time when prostitution was legal. Oh my god, I look like my grandmother. <laughs> I have no idea what your grandmother looks like. She looks like that. <laughs> I haven't actually intentionally taken a portrait of anyone in over two years, and I recognize that maybe my portrait skills aren't as good as they used to be. But then, you're not here for a photo. You're here for a story. So you just start with the question you want me to get to the point that you want me to be. Well, so typically I start off with asking, like, so um, what is a travel tip that you're very fond of or you like to use a lot? Don't have one. Um, (laughs) Out and about traveling in the world or when you were first leaving Montana, what was something that was like a lesson learned for you? Well, a lesson that was learned was when I got to the Philippines on my way to Thailand. It was evening, and um, one of the people I'd flown over with asked me to go to dinner with him at the officer's club. And so um, before he picked me up, I uh, put on a sweater, because in Montana, when the sun goes down, it's cold, chilly. And when I walked out, it was equal. It was dark. It was equally as warm at like six o'clock at night as it was at three o'clock in the afternoon when I arrived. So that was pretty much a shock to know <laughs> you don't need a sweater in the Philippines so got yeah. it was the humidity kind of uh, a lot for you a um, big adjustment no it, it wasn't too bad when, when I, I got to Thailand fortunately when I uh, arrived at Thailand um, and there were only 40 American women there on on the base and we were all in an area that had like a big um, like a western uh, fort uh, fence around it and as a matter of fact the, out front there was a sign that called us Fort Round Eye which was very um, racist and there was a lot of problems with it but we're talking 1973 anyway so um, the uh, fortunately there were like a, a handful of rooms that had air conditioning in it and I was lucky enough that I got one of those rooms that had air conditioning the rest of them just had a rotating ceiling fan and Ooh. so my time in Thailand was very comfortable because I worked in an air-conditioned place and my bedroom was air-conditioned so no the humidity didn't 
I don't remember it bothering me. That Gosh. Much. So, yeah. Nice. So, yeah, I just remember, like, my fish, first trip from... Um, yeah, here in Montana to New York, uh-huh. and just my hair just like, oh, yeah. whoa, it curls now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> totally yeah. different. Yeah, definitely. It, you know, after living in Montana for so long, you forget that there are other climates, you know, other than <laughs> comfortable. Well, or so. moving back for me as I was like, it is so dry here all yeah. the time. Yeah, um, it is. And readjusting for that. Yeah, it is, but now I'm acclimated to it, so yeah. Fair enough. I just bought three bottles of hand lotion. So there my you hands go. Don't crack. <laughs> there you go. Because <laughs> you said that you joined the Air Force. Right. I just want to make sure I have this timeline right. Right. So you joined the Air Force. Mm-hmm. And then you started doing the disc jockey work. I cross trained into broadcasting. Right. Oh, okay. So they yeah. did radio and TV as synonymous, basically. Correct. Got it. Correct. And then was, does that count, or was that like in a traditional university setting, or was it? Because uh, you said you graduated from broadcasting. Broadcasting school, right. Okay, yeah. let me back up. Okay. When I went into the Air Force, I went in as a typist, and then I was able to cross-train. So, okay, I went in in 1971. In 1972, I was able to cross-train. 73. I was able to cross-train into broadcasting, and they sent me to the military Defense Information School in Indianapolis. It was not a God. university. It was just a school for broadcasting. And it was like, I want to say two months. And the first part was journalism, and then it was radio, and then it was TV, and then bingo, you graduated. And then they sent you overseas. Um, Damn, I'm kind of jealous. It took me three years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. You went to, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and um, actually... Probably well, I didn't learn anything about film. There was no film. It was just broadcasting. But, but it was intense. You know, it was like, and we didn't have yeah. to do any generals or anything like that. I mean, it was just broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting. But anyway, um, so the Vietnam War was still going on, and um, actually, no, the troops had been pulled out. Nixon had pulled the troops out, but um, there were still some uh, bases still. Operating in Southeast Asia, and the base I would go to, Karat, which is kind of in central uh, Thailand, um, which I did not know at the time because I got there in August, and the troops had been pulled out earlier. Um, but what I did not know, and probably most everybody else didn't know, is we were still flying secret, unauthorized well, secret bombing missions into Cambodia and Laos to wipe up the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And we had the planes at our base that we were there in Karat. Because when I arrived there in August, two weeks later, the war officially ended and the bombing stopped. And so that's when the war actually ended. But at the time they gave me my assignment to Thailand, um, I remember going in there and they they sat me down and they said, now, you don't have to go if you don't want to. You can protest this. Because a lot of the GIs who maybe like were security or law enforcement or just whatever, they didn't want to go to, to Southeast Asia, so they would protest mm. and they would claim conscientious objector or whatever. So when they said to me, now, do you want to go? You can protest this. And I said, hell no, I want to go. I want to go to Vietnam. And they said, well, we can't send you to Vietnam, but... Because you're a girl. <laughs> hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> what was your mind space or like head space when you were like, I want to go to Vietnam. I want to be right in the thick of it. Like, what were you thinking? Uh, what were you thinking? <laughs> well, I was an, uh, a 20-year-old 
um, conservative, raised in the military, uh, pro-Vietnam. If, if we don't stop Vietnam, that domino's going to fall and all the world's going to become communist. You know, I bought into that propaganda. Okay. And that's one of the reasons why I joined the Air Force was I wanted to do something for my country. And because I thought, yeah, I don't want to be no sissy man who doesn't want to go to Vietnam. I want to go over there and be part of it. And not knowing a damn thing about what really went on. I was very naive, you know, but I wanted to be supportive of our country. I, I guess my curiosity is, was it more bravado or curiosity to oh, go and see bravado. it? Yeah. Bravado, okay. yeah. Because <laughs> uh, once I got over into uh, Thailand, the first thing they said to us at our in in in. Uh, country briefing was there are still mortar attacks and if the mortars come it's probably better to hide under your bed than to go into bunker because there's cobras and I'm like oh wow but when it really hit home that I was going over there is when they had me qualify with an M16 and I don't know if you ever held an M16 but I'm just a little tiny person and I had to do it three ways I had to do it standing I had to do it sitting I had to do it laying down and I could I'm sure I didn't qualify I don't know how I ended up over there but but anyway, but that was the first time I thought, whoa, this is war. But anyway, so, I, I said, yeah, I want to go. Now, how do you feel about that, the attitude that you had? Well, I think one of the reasons why I really wanted to go was I, I wanted to go play records and be a disc jockey. I wanted to do my job. Yeah. You know, I couldn't do it here in the States. I wanted to go. I just learned all this. I wanted to go do it. And sure, I would love to go to Aviano, Italy, or, or the Azores, or even Germany, but Thailand's where they needed me. And again, first woman over there in broadcasting. And um, so, again, when you're 20, you, you, some things don't, you know, you just go with the flow, and I went with the flow. And plus, darling, there were 2,000 American men on that base, and 40 of us women, I mean... <laughs> Hell yeah, I'm going. So anyway, no. So what do I feel about the whole thing now? I'm very, I'm very anti-Vietnam and very, very much as a history teacher realized there was no reason we should have been over there. I'm very sad that we were glad that the war ended two weeks after I got there because then basically I was in a after war situation. So there wasn't, yeah, there wasn't anything to worry about as far as that goes and and um, so anyway, so I got to Thailand. Did it reflect that? Was that a lot more toned down? Yeah. 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 And it was much more, it was much more like we were all there at Club Med or something like that, which, which I'm not denigrating what went on in Vietnam. That was different from what was happening in Thailand. Because Thailand, we were across the Mekong. We were far away from Saigon and Tonsonut and uh, the big bases and where the action was. In Thailand, even though we were still supporting the whole mission, it was not, I mean, Thailand was where the, Viet, the, where the guys from Vietnam came for rest and relaxation. Yeah, can you give me, um, because personally, I don't know what, why Thailand was involved with the Vietnam War. Do you think, could Thailand, you shed some light on that? Yeah, sure. Thailand was involved because we were friendly with the Thai government at the time, and they allowed it. We needed, we needed to have bases there for our planes so that we could support the mission in, in Vietnam. And in Thailand, there were, um, there was Karat, 
Pakli, Utapau, Uban, Udorn. So what was the government basis in Thailand at the time? Um, the, uh, was king. Still right. the king. Still and I'm, kind of a king. Yeah, I'm going to talk about that in a second. But yeah, it was okay. the king. And, um, and yeah, they very much wanted us there. They very much wanted us there. We helped their economy a great deal. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were five bases, like I said, and we brought in a lot of money, and not to mention um, Camp Friendship, which was an army base there at Karat. So there were quite a few American military stationed there in Thailand, and then um, our mission was to help support the bombing of the Ho Chi Minh Trail because um, what was happening was the North was uh, coming down to the South, and they made a little detour with Ho Chi Minh Trail through Laos and Cambodia. Well, legally, we couldn't do anything in Laos and Cambodia, but we were bombing that trail mm-hmm. so that we couldn't keep the supplies from coming down. So these are the unauthorized... Right, right. And that was, you know, that was the big problem. Trips. That was Nixon, what Nixon got in trouble for, was for moving us into... And that was the straw that broke the camel's back, according to, you know, the college students and the young people here, is once we got into Cambodia and Laos, it was like... What are we doing? Why are we doing this? We don't need to be there. So it, that's where the whole thing came about. So anyway, that's why we were in Thailand to support that mission. And um, and then we were in Thailand and we were in Taiwan, which would have been over here. Same thing, to kind of support the, the mission. And when uh, everything in Vietnam finally fell and the Americans were leaving and um, the bases were shutting down, it was Taiwan that they brought the American forces to to escape from Vietnam. So, gotcha. Anyway, so anyway, I got to Thailand. So, boop, boop. Uh-huh. We got Terry in Thailand. I'm in Thailand, and I came in on a C-141. And C-141s have no windows, and you fly backwards. <laughs> it was a really weird experience. And we landed in Tan Sanut, so I was actually in Vietnam. And um, they unloaded cargo, and so where I was sitting, they opened it up, and we were on the tarmac. And all I could see was just these waves of heat just coming off the tarmac. And I thought, whoa. And then they closed it, and they took us over to Thailand. And then we got there, and, and like I said, and, and, and that C-141 was also what took the returning troops back to the United States because so it was called the Silver Bird. And that's mm-hmm. what we called it, Silver Bird. You're, you're going back to the world is what it was called. So was it comfortable? Because, I mean, when we talk about travel, a lot of the conversation is yeah. like, well, and then we just flew over and we got, you know, peanuts or whatever, or coffee. But, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, but no, I flew commercial from uh, Travis Air Force Base, San Francisco, to the Philippines, to Clark. Okay. And then... And then it was less comfortable. I think it was then it was I took the C-141, I think. It's been a long time. But anyway, yeah, no, it wasn't a very comfortable... It was loud, and but it wasn't very long of a trip. You know, that's why they, we flew commercial. So when we got there... <laughs> it's like flying out of Helena to anywhere. You're in like a little sardine can. Yeah, that's exactly. Just... And, no yeah. Pe- and no peanuts. <laughs> no peanuts. <laughs> so anyway... Um, so when I landed there, uh, they came to meet me, and, and they took me to my hooch, and they gave us the speech about the, the mortars and the, the cobras. and, and um, Classic. Yeah, I know. Was, <laughs> was, was the delivery like, hey, everyone be very cautious, or was it like this, like, was the person just used to it by now? Yeah, pretty much used There's to just it. just a fact and, of life, they're cobras. And I think that they pretty much knew that, I mean, I, I don't think there'd been a mortar attack for on Karat. You see, Karat's right here. 
we can't see it on the radio, but anyway, it's in almost central uh, Thailand, and then you've got a few miles to go for the Mekong, and then they would be firing the mortars on the other side of the Mekong, but they wouldn't get us, they'd get the Uban and Udorn first. So, But yeah, it was kind of like, and and the stewardess giving the whole, you know, routine at the beginning, and don't go into the bunkers because there's cobras. <laughs> so, anyway, so... Um, so I was really lucky. I had, like I said, I had a hooch that had air conditioning, and I was like mere steps through the gate to uh, the AFTN station, American Forces Thailand Network, and we were the head network um, station there. We did the news, we did everything. We ran all the the can shows, and then the other four stations would pick us up, um, and then they'd go, and then they do their own local shows, and I. Um, did uh, a morning show right off the bat, and then later I I got my own uh, country show, and called Be Country with Terry. What was country like at that time? Because right now it's very different. Well, see, country changed about. It was about that time. It would be a few years that John Denver and Olivia Newton-John won the country music awards of the year so I definitely would have tuned in at this point like I love John Denver yeah well John Denver was he was and Olivia Newton-John were both played on rock stations country was very traditional back then you Hank Williams Merle Haggard Buck Owens Loretta Lynn uh Lynn Anderson at that time in country music you could not play two women back to back yeah that was like a rule yeah you could not and and um and so, and there weren't a whole lot of women back then. But uh, John Denver and Olivia Newton-John were doing um, what was called then, at that time, crossover music. And at that time, there was there was some distinct genres. There was country, and everybody used to call it country western. But it is not country western. It is country music. The western part is like Roy Rogers, Sons of the Pioneer, blah blah blah, from the fifties. With country music, there was pop music, which is basically rock and roll and then there was soul music and the soul music was a precursor for rap but oh my god the soul music back then was just so wonderful and now it's it's not sung anymore as much as it is rap Mm -hmm. and anyway so you had those basic three genres and then you had of course your classical and your easy listening and the three did not cross over. You didn't have a country song that crossed over into pop or pop into... Sometimes pop and soul would cross over, but never country. And mm-hmm. then when rock, when John Denver started to do Country Roads and um, uh, West, West Virginia... Well, I guess that's Country Roads. When he began to do his songs, he was so... Could have crossed over. And then when he became got the Country Music Award, that was when most country music just kind of changed. And they said... They, had to accept it. Yeah, exactly. And so then it became more of a crossover. So it is today much different than it was back uh, back then. So with radio shows, I mean, I know that classically I'm under the impression that a lot of radio shows did, you know, like they would talk about something or, you know, like the, uh, the worm character that you did. Um, did you have a persona that you brought on or was there certain things that you tried to talk about with every um, show? Yeah, yeah. There, uh, now, now, me personally, I, now again, you got to remember that this is... Were you given a script? No, no, oh, okay. no, no. We were not given any scripts and we could program our own shows. Now, I worked in, in uh, radio for 26 years and when I worked here at KBLL in Helena, Montana, by the end of it, everything was already on reel-to-reel tape. 
and all you did was, you knew what song was coming up, right, and all you did was punch the button, you could program it. Mm-hmm. And to me, that took the fun out of it. And I, and I know today it's even, it's even more different. It's not on reel-to-reel anymore. But um, back in the olden days when we did it, we programmed our own show, and that was really fun. I'd come in, and, and we had, the, the radio station had, radio, radio TV station, because it was both. But actually, um, outside the radio station was a van that had all our TV equipment in because Thailand owned everything that we had. So we didn't want to give them our, our TV stuff, so we had it in a, in a trailer so we could hook it up and take it away. Got it. And so anyway, so there was radio TV station. And the radio room had uh, the broadcast studio and then the recording studio where you could record your show or do the PSAs or whatever. And then there was a huge room that just had records. And the records were sent specifically to American Forces radio and television service uh, stations to be used only by them, could not be used commercially. And um, for example, you'd get, and you get a weekly shipment, and you'd get, and they would, what we call LPs, the 33 and 3rd, the long plane ones. And they would take all the, they would go through Billboard and see what was the top 10 songs that week, and they'd press them onto that album, and then you'd have them. And, um, and that's what you played. And then there would be albums that, like somebody like um, Parveer and the Raiders, would do an album, and then you'd have that too. So you had your choice of, and again, it was country, soul, pop, classical, easy listening, everything, every genre you, you could imagine. So it was a very huge room. And actually, sadly, I was in Taiwan at um, AFNT, American Forces Network Taiwan, when the base closed. And they took all those records out and bulldozed them so that nobody could get them. Ugh. Yeah, it was really sad. So anyway, so um, you'd program, you'd go in and you'd just program your show. And usually you went by Billboard. You know, mm. Billboard is the top. I'm just, I'm sorry. I just got to take a second because I'm like, I know the value of what those mm. records could get nowadays. <laughs> yeah, I know. I Oof. know. Then a lot of value, but also still now yeah. a lot and of value. And think about that. And that was just one station. Think about every station. Ooh. No, don't don't make me think about that. Don't make me think about that. Don't make me think about that. What a waste. What a waste. I know. I know. Um, so anyway, so you get to program your own show. You go by Billboard and you pick all the top things. And, and then, okay, and then back to your question. Um, I did not have a personality back then. I <laughs> I had no clue. Takes a brave person to say that. <laughs> so I was like this really boring person, you know. Okay, here's uh, the Beatles, and it's uh, 12 o'clock, and I hope you're having a good time, <laughs> whatever. Uh-huh. I mean, I really sucked. I really did. But I knew my music, and if I just played my music, and, and for me, the biggest compliment I had was when the young, you know, the young guys who were the GI, who were the disc jockeys, who were cool, and had done it in civilian life and one of them came up to me and said that was a really great show you did the other night and it wasn't necessarily my personality it was the music and I was like yeah that's cool when you have them telling you you play good music because you know because I was one of those people that did like to play Donnie and Marie and the monkeys and they fit in a certain place you know yeah so um but everybody say that there's a lot of radio shows where I'm like just please play this song yeah exactly (laughs) and that's kind of the way I felt you know if I couldn't be entertaining just Play the damn music. But most of the other guys were very, very entertaining, and they they did really good shows. And I think that um, 
AFTN was very popular. Well, Good Morning America, uh, Good Morning Vietnam. Yeah. And Good Morning Vietnam came out after I got out of the service. And um, I did not know Adrian Cronauer, but I had heard of him. But that's basically, if you watch that movie and you see what he did, he did that's what we did in American Forces uh, radio and television. I'm really glad you brought up that movie because there is this weird uh, dissonance between what he's doing for his job and the orderliness to that, and then the life outside in Vietnam is very different, um, much less safe. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was wondering what was your experience of the culture when you were off off duty? Oh, off duty was was just wonderful because um, well, and Thailand back then was the greatest assignment in the world. Uh, again, especially for, you know, a woman. Um, but I never felt any fear going off base and going down, taking the bus and going downtown and just walking through the markets. I loved it. Um, I loved the food. I loved the people. I learned enough Thai that I could, you know, ask how much. I knew, you know, what prices were. Hello, I had a tailor who would make me clothes. And it was it was just wonderful. I have to rewind. So you had a tailor who would make you clothes. And you already, so hopefully we still have this little bit, but you were describing all the different outfits um, that the women in Air Force and the women in Marines, mm-hmm. that everyone had distinct and very feminine outfits. Mm-hmm. Did you, uh, in Thailand, did you get a keep doing that? What kind of clothes would you one get? Of the fr- one of the How first things they did Tell is... me about your clothes. Tell me about your clothes. Well, uh, one of the first things they did was I had to go down to Taylor and get some new clothes made because the uniform that I had was... was um, uh, too warm. And so what they gave us were looser fitting blouses, but, but they were tailored and then wrap around skirts and they were wonderful. Oh gosh, they were wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. So very, yeah, very comfortable. And so, yeah, we did get new uniforms for that. And it was, it was really neat. And you know what? I gave all my uniforms to the military museum here at Fort Harrison. I oh. wish I had them, yeah. But, well, but that's yeah. kind of a good... Thing. Yeah, well, I wanted them to go someplace. But yeah. anyway, so yeah, so that's, so that's how I got introduced to her. And I said, hey, can you make me civilian clothes? And she was like, yeah. So I had, oh, geez, terrible taste, ugly clothes. But hey... <laughs> They were fun. <laughs> well, you do have me thinking of like the seventies and like that um, really intense yellow kind of. Choices. Oh, like, geez. What kind of colors do you? Oh, make? you read my mind. Yes, I had this. <laughs> I had this. Why I don't know why that was the suit. clothes color of the decade, but it was that really, really. I had a pantsuit made yellow. out of yellow. Yeah, and I looked like if I'd have put on a pair of big shoes, I would have looked like I'd escaped from the circus. Yeah, it was just gross and ugly. Again, I was so young. Coming from Montana, I knew nothing. This was a freaking culture shock, and here I was. And and one of the coolest things for me, though, at night, after I did my show, is um, I belonged to, I had to live in the women's area, but since I was in AFTN, um, the AFTN guys all had their area down in the other part of the of the base, and they had in every every area the medics, the fighter pilots, the personnel people. They all had little bars, hooch bars in mm. their area. That was you know the big thing. So I'd go I'd go at the end of the night and go join my colleagues down at the hooch bar. Well, as I would walk through the different barracks, I could hear my show being played. They recorded it. 
and it was just really cool. Yeah. And I, and then they would call in, and they, and they would just to hear my voice because they miss their families, their women, their wives, and 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 they would call in and say, "Can can you play uh, a lot of um, missing you songs and uh, want to get back home songs?" Lonely and, Hearts Club. Yeah, yeah. And and they would ask me to play that. And another popular song was. Um, uh, Phantom 309 by Red Sovine and basically it just it's a story about uh, this guy who uh, is out on hitchhiking and he gets picked up by this trucker and the trucker drops him off at a coffee place and gives him a dime and says uh, tell him it's on so and so and the guy goes into the gets a coffee and he said this is on so and so and the guy behind yeah that happens a lot uh, that guy died. He, he killed. He he's, he was in an accident and he died. Now this it's a Phantom Three Hundred Nine. You should listen to it. It's a really good song. Oh, man, but anyway, so nice. I would get that yeah. the most requested song simply because the fighter pilots flew Phantoms. They'd always call in. I get play Phantom Three Hundred Nine. Okay, here's for the fighter pilots, Three Hundred Nine. So anyway, but and a lot of missing you songs and a lot of guys just called to just talk and hear my voice and so it was it was pretty cool. So anyway, uh, yeah. So. I'd go off base by myself. I had to wear civilian clothes. You were not allowed to wear a uniform off base. Mm. Wear civilian clothes, and I'd go best spring rolls in the whole world in Thailand. I believe it. Best. I, and I've tried to replicate them here. No. So good. And Yeah. Well, I just got excited because I was like, you know, oh. my brother and I make spring rolls, so we might have to do something I make Christmas rolls. time. <gasps> we might have to compare them. We oh, have to, okay, good. we have to okay. do a Christmas we time will, thing. Oh, I love it. I love the way you think. Yeah, this so. is for a Christmas episode. It's okay, Christmas Eve. Now it's Christmas Eve. And we're driving in here in those big Joe. Well, son, let me tell you what happened about 10 years ago. Did you, yeah, how long were you in? It was in a year because year. Okay. Um, at that time, um, everybody was only in a year. It was in a so, year. And that's part of the problem with Vietnam. The whole Vietnam War was chaos of just people Well, back you and forth. get these people there, they get into a rhythm of how to go out and do reconnaissance and, and uh, figure out the whole Vietnamese thing. And then they deros, which means a date of back to the United States or something. And then they'd leave. And so you could never get a cohesive thing going on. And, but that was the way it was. We only went for one year. And as soon as you got there, the first year you got in country, you started a countdown of when you were going to de so when you were going to leave and get down that silver bird and come back to the world. And that was the big thing. So, yeah, it was only there a year. That's rough. Yeah, it was for the guys in Vietnam. And I feel really guilty had such a great time and it was wonderful and I got to do something I loved and um, I lo- and and um, got to know my future because one day the guy the guy who was who was doing the radio production and he was great he was good not you know I wasn't good enough to do that they, I was a girl what did I know and so anyway he needed a female voice he needed a, a French he needed Marie Antoinette in his ad and so I was the only voice there, and he had no idea how this was going to turn out. And my line was, um, Oh, sacré bleu, I have already cleared the table and thrown away the garbage. And he was like, wow. And that started my career in production. Okay. And so then I learned how to produce radio ads, and that's when I got out of the Air Force and came back to Montana. That's what I did in, um, in Haver and here in 
and Helena and uh, Bozeman. Well, Bozeman did TV. And I won some awards. And it was like, wow, this is really cool. And then, of course, I got... I did radio there in Thailand, but then later I got into TV and I worked in television too, so television production. So, but anyway, in Thailand they kept me, they kept me in radio and uh, it was, it was fun. It was great. So, so one last question with Thailand is with the, I want to say there's a lot of cultural difference and so were there any um, native holidays that you got to enjoy in Thailand? Are there any special holidays that you got to witness? Um, yes. There's, uh, there were two. There was Song Krong and there was another one and I can't remember. But yeah, they, um, they had the floating markets and, uh, they would fill them with, there would be flowers everywhere and everybody would, would, uh, celebrate. And although, um, they had these festivals. I didn't really know what was going on. I mean, I didn't really, I just got kind of went downtown and had a good time with everybody else. Mm-hmm. But I'm not really sure what they were celebrating, you know, and why. I didn't, the only real cultural thing I did there is I took a trip to um, up north to the bridge over the River Kwai which is built between Burma and Thailand, and that was uh, during World War II, where the Japanese had captured all these Americans. Uh, uh, I guess they were some Americans, mostly British. And they forced them to build a railroad bridge over the River Kwai so that they could the Japanese could take their goods yeah. into Burma. And um, so that was the only real cultural thing in Thailand that I, I actually got to see and, and witness. Most of the time, I just kind of hung out on base and... Then went downtown and ate Thai food. That is really interesting, though, to be, I guess, amid one war and then looking back at the history of a different, yeah. a very yeah. different war. But definitely, still and the then, the strings all kind of come together, right. and weave together. Right. Well, a little bit of back, background about Southeast Asia. Um, it was French colonial for the longest time because of the rubber, Michelin, and then when the Japanese in World War Two, the Japanese came in. And um, so the Vietnamese asked us Americans to come in and help advise them against the Japanese. And at that time, we were really good friends with Ho Chi Minh and uh, and the Vietnamese. And then when the war ended, the French mm-hmm. came back to colonize. And by that time, Ho Chi Minh said, "No, I want our country to be one." And then, and sadly, he chose the word communism rather than democracy. And if he'd said he wanted democracy, we wouldn't have been over there. But because he used the C word, we're like, oh, no. (laughs) So anyway, so that's how we got over there. And then we kind of, as an advisory position for the French, and then the French finally realized this wasn't going to work, and they left. And they left us there, and that's how we got there. And that's kind of the same with Thailand. Um, Thailand, of course, was, because of the king, the monarchy, they had a whole different structure, and they were never really not free and they didn't have quite the rubber plantation thing or the colonization that Vietnam did because Thailand's always been a king. And one thing I did want to throw into my, my radio stuff, we were not allowed to ever play any music or show the king and I because they hated the way Ewell Brenner portrayed their king. So even if we played like a piece of music from the, oh no, we weren't allowed to do that. So we weren't like two watts. I mean, we were, you couldn't hear us really off base, but still 
they might hear us play, you know, um, getting to know you or whatever, and they'd go, oh, we hate you because of our king. So anyway, okay, that was just one little thing <laughs> besides little the not playing two, on that. two women back to back. Yeah, yeah. Little, little things. <laughs> Um, did you get to celebrate Christmas, and if so, yeah. what did it look like? Yeah, yeah. Christmas was um, well. Uh, let's see. Um, I had that would have been your first Christmas abroad, right? Right. right. Yeah. I had a fella, and Ooh. he was stay. He was stationed at Takli, which was um, uh, I don't know, two hours away from Karat. How did he win? How did he win your attention? Because you said there are like a lot more men than women, so it's a lot of competition. He how was, did you, how did he you was my boss. <laughs> he, he was my boss, and also he was devastatingly handsome, and he had the best radio voice in the whole world. And he had uh, been a disc jockey in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. So he oh, knew yeah, country Southern music. Kinda. Yeah. Oh, no, he was from New York. Oh. But, yeah, but he, um, oh, and he, yeah, he was just, it was just wonderful, and and we just clicked. I mean, um, we had a really great time together. And so he was he went to Talkley, and um, and uh, so at Christmas I um, took a taxi and drove up there. Or did I fly? I I went up there a couple of times. Anyway, and I spent Christmas with him, and we just we had a really good time. We went to the club and had dinner, and we went we. <laughs> to see Walking Tall Christmas Eve, which is a movie with Buford Pusser that is the most violent movie I'd ever seen up to that point in my life. But Christmas Eve, okay. So anyway, and um, and then we put together, I, uh, and I always remember this, and this is so wonderful. Uh, we put together a New Year's show because it was on New Year's that Hank Williams Sr. died in a car accident. Oh. So together we edited it and brought in the music and talked about his history and kind of did a little radio show and talk and worked together and it was like oh this is so much fun and it was great and then he he pcs'd and left and went to guam and we just kind of drifted apart but sure anyway but it was yeah it was it was um it was fun so that was christmas yeah which i'll always remember but going to of the movie but yeah that, that yeah we we all celebrated christmas we played christmas carols and you know did christmas shows and the whole thing and yeah it was um looking back on it now i'm really surprised that i wasn't homesick or didn't want to come back to america mm-hmm. i mean i i obviously wanted to come back to america but i just it was to be young and to be there it was the most magical and to be on the radio and to play music? Oh, gosh, yeah. I'm going to throw it out there to just have that company or that camaraderie around you. Must have been... Well, you know, it was really weird because I never made any female friends. Oh, I oh. Yeah. I mean, I, I lived in... I had my own room, air-conditioned room, and I was at work. When I wasn't at work, I was in my room listening to music. Also, I had uh, the first... I had a Sony TV color Sony TV and um, and I could pick up our station even though it was black and white but I'd be watching our station listening to music um, just kind of hanging out in my room and if I was there I was at the station and I really didn't because there were no other women in in broadcasting and um, well later one did come and I and she and I became friends but I left shortly after that but but um, the camaraderie was with 
with the guys and going down to the hooch bar and hanging out with them and 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 I did make friends with one of the uh, the, the girls, the Thai girls that was a bartender there, she took me to her house and she cooked me a traditional Thai meal. And yeah, and that was really fun. And and she could speak English and I was just amazed at, because it took me so long to pick up Thai. But, and we all had, we all had maids. And so I didn't have to do my laundry or clean my room or anything for, you know, it was a minimum amount of money. But so it was, uh, it was, it was, Again, like I said, I feel sorry. I feel guilty because I'm a veteran. I'm a Vietnam era veteran, but she could have been a club med, you know, for all I was there. I always got to come home, not necessarily at Christmas, but yeah. so yeah. So Thailand was was great, and uh, then from there I went to uh, to Guam, and that was nice too. Terry has a secret little Mona Lisa smile here, but I recognize that this interview is going long. We'll look into Guam and see what Terry did there next episode. As well, the conversation weaves into the concept of world peace, which seems fitting for a COVID-covered Christmas. In fact, it's round two. And you can see there's a stark difference between how Terry and I view the world, but there's still a lot where we overlap. So it's interesting to listen over again and to ask, is it generational? And who do you agree with? So be sure to tune in on December 15th. If you like the show, the best way to support it is to share it with other listeners who love to travel, listeners who like to think about traveling, or even people who have an interest in history. As well, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review because I hear that helps a lot. As always, this is... Uh, produced, directed, and edited by yours truly, Morgan Estberg. Thank you for listening, and I'll be back December 15th. <laughs>